You're listening to the No Nonsense Amateur Radio Podcast, a conversation on where we are and where we're going in the world of amateur radio. Your hosts are Dan, KB6NU, and Tom, KB5RF. And today, we're here with Ward Silver to talk about Ham Radio 2.0. Dan, in the spirit of how we just get right down to business here, why don't you be the introducer of our special guest for this morning? Well, thanks, Tom. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Today, we have uh, Ward Silver, N0AX. The cliche goes, he's one of those guys that almost needs no introduction. But for the two guys out there that haven't heard of him, Ward is a um, contributing editor to QST, editor of the AWR Handbook, author of Ham Radio for Dummies, and numerous other uh, uh, articles and books. You know, he's, he's kind of like the a- Isaac Asimov of amateur radio. <laughs> oh, boy. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. And all that, um, and I still can't get my CIV interface to work this morning on the uh, ICOM. So uh, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. You know, uh, all the background doesn't work if you still can't get it to work. I know so the I feeling. Think. I know the feeling. Well, Murphy's Law holds for all of us. So that's the way it goes. That's right. Thanks for the, the kind words on the intro. I'll try to live up to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you will. So you've been known uh, for talking about Ham Radio 2.0. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what you th- you think is Ham Radio 2.0. Okay. Well, Ham Radio 2.0 is kind of a, a good way to get people thinking about what's happening. Uh, there's a lot of change, technical, operational, organizational, all these different things are sort of in play at the moment. And to me, it just feels like a a shift that's it's similar to the way we think about computer stuff. Um, we've had version 1.0 for a while. It runs pretty well. It's all good. And then you get a sense that you've sort of played it as far as it will go in certain ways. And then some new stuff comes along and you say, well, how can I incorporate this into the overall program? And so you wind up with something that incorporates a bunch of the old stuff, but also extends it and adds some new things. And so it's sort of this 1.0, 2.0 meme presents it in a, a more comprehensive way. It's less threatening to people and um, helps them understand that you're not throwing away 1.0, you're extending it. Nice. So that uh, opens the conversation. Yeah, I, re- I really like that idea. I, I like that idea that we're, we're not throwing away what we have, but we're just moving forward. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, certain fundamentals, certain, uh, you know, things that have kept the 1.0 going for a century. Uh, we don't want to just throw these things out. We want to carry them along and, and carry those into the new, the new brave new world. But, um, we have to make sure that we're talking about the fundamentals and not just a particular technology or uh, something that we've grown accustomed to. We have to, to bring the fundamentals and sort of dress them up in a new way. So I think as long as people understand the fundamentals are, are going to be carried through, it's a lot easier to look at new things as uh, not replacing the old but extending. Mm. I like the statement you had in, in one of your talks I saw on YouTube that says we need to change our focus from uh, nostalgia for the past to looking towards the future. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to turn around and look out the windshield. 
it's uh, it's easy. I mean, it's a hobby uh, in some. It, it's a service and a hobby, and we have this emotional connection to it. Uh, all of us came to ham radio because we were captivated by some interesting aspect of it. In my particular background, without going through this, um, you know, step by step. I got into it um, as sort of this DXing and contesting angle as a way to listen to the world turning. And um, so that led to an interest in propagation and antennas. And so you get this emotional connection to um, what got you into it. You know, it's like your, your first um, your first experience sort of sets the tone for how you want to proceed. And I'm still interested in those things. But I don't uh, necessarily want to have a, an HW16 as my main radio anymore. I want to, you know, move along. So um, that's uh, that's sort of carried me through. And along the ways, you get involved with activities like um, founding WRTC back in 1990 with Danny K7SS and, and all the other guys to create this new sort of Olympic kind of thing. And then there's HAMSI, which is the uh, HAMSCI.org, which is a group of professional researchers and HAM, um, technical, technically interested people all getting together to do things like have the solar eclipse QSO party. And I've been fortunate to sit on the YASME Foundation board so we can push some of these projects along. And all this sort of builds in a forward-looking direction that I hope people will understand and say, oh, gee, you know, there's some fun things to do uh, out there. How can we how can we do this stuff? And so I help push that peanut along wherever I can. Yeah, because I think we have some really great things going on. Uh, another thing you mentioned uh, was satinogs. I think I think that's just a very cool thing. Yeah, that was just something I found. Um, I mean, it certainly wasn't my invention. Um, some uh, guys from Greece got together and uh, developed this um, automated satellite telemetry reception system with a 3D printed um, ASL rotating system. And you could send it um, the Keplerians for a satellite and it would figure out where it was and and at the appropriate time, this thing would come to life, point the antennas, suck down the telemetry, and send it back to the um, satellite uh, sponsors. Wow. And uh, and that's being extended to amateur satellites. And why can't you transmit? Uh, no reason. Just haven't, haven't done it yet. Uh, simple matter of programming, the four most dangerous words in the English language. And uh, off they go. So it's S-A-T-N-O-G-S dot com or dot org, I guess. I don't know, Satnogs, just search for it and you'll find it. Yeah, yeah, cool. In in then too, like just just to keep going here, you know, we're we're in the sort of the middle of the transition from the older analog radios right. to SDR radios. Right. And uh, I think that's uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, the handbook, I'm the editor of the handbook, and um, it had gotten to this point where it was so invested in um, analog technology and uh, <laughs> I'm looking at the technology coming along. In a few years, you will not be able to buy a commercial radio that is anything but SDR. Right. Uh, you open the hood, and what you'll see is some filters and a big chip with lots of legs. 
you know, and that'll be it. And a module that makes puts a fire in the wire, and that's um, that's where it's going to be. So the handbook had to change. Um, it's it's going to change everything, but a lot of things will remain the same. If that's a contradictory statement, there you go. <laughs> no, I no, I'm I'm with you totally on that. So I had a, I had a question, and 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 uh, Dan, maybe you want to sequence this uh, uh, somewhere else. But in this transition from analog to digital, you know what we have essentially is digital solutions in hardware and in software. And SDR has been a profound change, and we're seeing how that's permeating through all the manufacturers. And uh, uh, from a digital point of view, and what that's changing in the way we operate a radio. And FT8 is a digital protocol. It's not new, but it's been you know evolved and now becoming widespread. Now, the question I would have is, where, what other technologies do you see coming along? Do you want to introduce that now, or do you want to want to hold? Yeah, we can go well, for it now. Um, I think primarily. Um, what's happening is we're seeing some real interesting systems being built out of these components that we have. Certainly SDR is an enormous change. SDR is as big a change to uh, radio technology as the Superhead was back in the day when it took over from the uh, TRF architecture. And it was enormous. Uh, it, It really revolutionized the way that you think of the spectrum and the way that you operated and it enabled amateurs to build all sorts of interesting new structures and so SDR is going to do the same um, for example uh, this the skimmers uh, CW skimmer by Alex VE3 NEA is it's an interesting technology in and of itself but what it was taken in made into the reverse beacon network reversebeacon.net. And so now you have this worldwide uh, network of receivers that are automatically decoding signals uh, from all over the place on all the different bands. And um, that tells you a whole lot about propagation. And uh, the researchers have taken note of this. And so there's all these new data points. I can get on the air I call one CQ, just CQ, 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 D-E-N-0-A-X a couple of times mm-hmm. in CW. And within 10 seconds, I have multiple reports from all around the world um, wh- that can hear my signal. And uh, I get an idea of the signal noise ratio, what bands are open, you know, the whole thing. It's um, That's a system level uh, thing where it takes fundamental components and builds something a new capability that we didn't have before. So SDR is big. Um, It's going to enable cognitive radio. Uh, As I talk about in QST, we are limited in what we can do on an automated basis as far as transmissions, at least here in the U.S., by the FCC rules. But we can still start building much more intelligent um, uh, radio systems. It, it might be helpful if uh, you could explain what cognitive radio is. I have a feeling 9.9 out of 10 folks may not fully understand that yet. Okay. Cognitive radio is uh, it basically is a, a radio that on, on its own, without human intervention, based on its programming, can observe the spectrum, uh, determine what the optimum strategy is for establishing a desired communication, that sort of engineering speak. And um, then 
uh, attempt and complete the, the contact, transfer the information, and then learn from that. You know, how did the strategy work? Was this uh, appropriate? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? And then apply that as you go forward. And that can all be done, simple matter of programming. Uh, and uh, there have been automated stations in the past. If you've ever been in a contest and worked uh, a station, uh, I think it was WU1F, gave out its name as TACO, Totally Automated Control Operator. <laughs> and so Joel had this thing. It would tune around the bands and it would make contacts. Wow. Uh, contest contacts are fairly well defined and uh, it would call and you would work it and it would give you the exchange and the name of taco and far you know, out yeah no idea um so these things can certainly be done and i know there's three letter agencies out there that have had this capability for years and years um but for amateurs uh cognitive radio is trying to do what amateurs do personally and have done for a century. I mean, you get on 40 meters any weekend evening and you're listening to the ready guys and the digital guys and the CW guys and the voice guys all slugging it out down there below 7,100. Yeah. Trying to figure out uh, what's going on. And sometimes sounds like a truck full of hogs running into a truck full of tin king, <laughs> but uh, you know, we get it done. And sometimes you can just sit there with the filters open and you can hear two or three different modes all trying to coexist and making their contacts and stuff. So I tell the cognitive guys in professional presentations that are talking about this. I said, look, just amateurs have been doing this for 40 years or a hundred years. Why don't you come talk to us and, and we'll tell you how you do it. And um, you guys code it up and let's see what we can do. So basically it's sort of an automated version of what we do already. And the fact that it's in software, makes it special and we call it cognitive radio, but cognitive radio is what amateur radio has been doing for a hundred years. So uh, just as one, uh, let's say potential use case for explanation purposes and then we can go on. You mentioned the reverse beacon.net and there's a tremendous amount of data there. So um, if you if you look at part of cognitive radio technology is machine intelligence and artificial intelligence, I mean, uh, neural networks that have the ability to learn and the reverse beacon potentially could be sort of the the fuel, uh, the, the data that's being used in a particular neural net to constantly be telling the radio, don't go to this band, try this band now. Right. For instance, mm -hmm. based, on, exactly. based on your radio, your propagation, where you are and your antenna and all that. It knows how to incorporate those presence, much more data than you could possibly hold in your mind all at one time. Right. Uh, you build up this uh, database. You know, it's like if you talk to some of the uh, longtime contest operators, the ones that are at the top of the top 10, you know, every time seems like, how do they do this? And you look at your I know. log, they've got twice as many QSOs and <laughs> look at all those multipliers and, and how do they do this? They must be cheating. No, they're not cheating. They just have this tremendous uh, database of they know when these weird little openings are. They know when the bands right. are going to be open. Right. They know uh, where to be in the band, you know, and, um, and, and, so, and they set up their equipment to take advantage of. Exactly. Yeah. You got it. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, they, they fine tune, they worry about uh, a DB, how long are they going to be audible in uh, Berlin, you know, to work all the German guys and when do you switch to Japan and all this kind of stuff. 
So they, they know this and they optimize and they have a strategy and, um, and they do it. So, you know, you can digitize some of that. For example, I, I wrote an article. If you look at the QST article in December on cognitive radio and follow the link to the Nuts and Volts uh, magazine article that I wrote on KNL Networks, um, Tony, uh, OH2UA, uh, got involved in contesting, worldwide contesting. He's a really good operator, but uh, what he did was integrate uh, real-time propagation know-how, some protocols, SDR, and uh, he built a marine communication system that uses HF, and it builds up this knowledge about what's happening in real-time propagation, and uh, he can route that uh, communication and any HF band that's open, wherever it needs to go, ships out in the ocean, it's in the harbor, whatever. And uh, so he's got this kind of intelligent network. And they got all that through amateur radio and some contest operation and all this kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. I mean, I, I can imagine people listening to this going, well, that's going to take all the fun out of radio. But it, it just shifts where you emphasize your your levels of interest in the things you can do. It's the same thing with FT8. I mean, you look at FT8, at first blush, it's not the most exciting thing right at first. You know, 15 seconds goes by, you do this, you do that. Anybody that has any macro writing capability could probably automate some of that. It's not that hard, right? Uh, right. But 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 the but the real intelligence comes in you figuring out what band and when and and uh, and whether or not that's the right person given the level of uh, uh, strength that they have from them at that given time. I mean, there's it's just it's gonna it's all part of the conversation here. The game is changing. Yeah, um, it's Larry uh, W7IUV had a an interesting comment about antenna modeling and you know how it was going to take all the fun out of it and stuff. And he said, <laughs> I don't think anybody's made an easy neck to easy neck QSO yet. You know, it's uh, you still got to put something up and you still got to bounce that signal off the ionosphere or off a rain cloud or off the moon or whatever. You still got to build a radio system that can do it. And uh, like I said, I'm struggling with, you know, my, uh, computer interface to the radio this morning, there's all this, there's still a, a certain level of complexity that you have to deal with. Now, it moves up up the stack, I guess, is the right, uh, right way to say it from a data communication standpoint. You're building at the system level with boxes as opposed to soldering resistors, but it's still the same intellectual challenge, and it's still fun. If you want to talk about FT8 for a minute. Yeah, um, let's do that. You know, uh, it, it hit a tipping point uh, about a year and a half ago, and it wasn't on anybody's radar screen. And now all of a sudden, it's a uh, dominant digital mode. And what happened is you get this confluence of technology and available computing resources and the need for it. There's a lot of people on FT8 that otherwise were off the air off the air uh, because of noise or because they couldn't put up antennas. And now they're on the air and they're having fun and they're doing interesting things. And it's an enormous change for many, many hams. You can't just ask everybody to put up a tower in the backyard anymore. 
That's not happening. What about people that live in apartments? What about people that operate mobile or portable, whatever? It's Promethean, and it's a giving ham radio to a whole new section of the hobby, uh, people who simply were unable to participate with the old analog modes for whatever reason. And now they're on the air, having fun. Uh, is it disruptive? Yeah, but so what? I think it's great to have these guys on the air. And it's we've done this before. FM was invented as a system back in the late 20s and early 30s because what they called atmospherics at the time or static was making AM untenable um, as a short-range point-to-point communication system for public safety and other such uses and so um, and for broadcast and that kind of thing. And so FM dealt with this noise problem and got rid of it. The ability to build FM radios came along and they understood the technology well enough and started building these things. And suddenly FM became the dominant technology in uh, point-to-point public safety. And it also opened up FM broadcasting as well. So we've gone through this before. And um, digital modes, FT8 is just the start. There's going to be a lot of digital modes out there. They're giving people the ability to compensate for noise and antenna restrictions and other things that have kept them off the air. So I support this wholeheartedly. Analog modes aren't going away, but I want to see more people enjoying their ham radio experience. And I think that comes through FT8 and other digital modes. Is the FCC going to make ruling on bandwidth and symbol rate and all this? I don't know. Uh, it's been out there for four or five years now, and they don't tip their hand. And uh, we're kind of a very small piece of their puzzle right now. So maybe there'll be a ruling, maybe there won't. But digital modes are going to enable more people to have more contacts, more places, have more fun. And I think that's good for AM radio going forward. Plus, I, I think it's an important point you made there about FT8 sort of just being the beginning. So, you know, it, it comes under a lot of uh, um, criticism for, you know, it's not there's nothing to it. You just sit there and hit buttons on your computer. But, you know, now we are seeing, um, uh, I don't know if you've ever operated JS8, where you can actually exchange messages. So you get the advantages of FT8 with the ability to actually communicate with another guy. And that's, uh, I think that's, uh, that's just the start of that, too. So... I mm-hmm. think uh, we have lots of things to look forward to in that arena. Oh, yeah. Uh, the AM guys complain bitterly about SSB and appliance operators and stuff in the 50s. And now you didn't have to have a TR switch. And now you didn't have to learn how to zero beat and blah, 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 blah. So, um, yeah, this is just uh, another another change. And it makes people uncomfortable. And I think we have to recognize that. Um, but uh, things are going to change and move forward. I'm I'm optimistic that FT8 and all that comes after it will uh, make for a very interesting future. And the analog modes will still be in there. Somebody will still be out there sending CW and talking about the weather. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a big CW guy. And uh, uh, I, what I, I, the joke I make about that is CW will be dead when they pry my Begali for my cold, dead fingers. <laughs> so. Yeah. So the, there's that. And, you know, a lot of people are learning it now, too, that, which 
which is kind of a nice uh, thing that I I get. Um, so, but now let's talk about people. So, you know, all this technology is is really is really very complex, like you say, and you know, you and I, I, I'm, I have an electrical engineering background myself. And, um, um, I, I just wonder sometimes whether it's going to be too complicated for the average ham. You ever oh, think about that? If it's too complicated for people to use, somebody will come along and write a wrapper for it and make it into a component. And so instead of having to get in, it's like modems, you and I went through that well, we had to get in there. We had to run the special utility and we had to set the baud rate and we had to set the start bits and right. the stop bits yeah. and, the, you know, number of data bits. And there was a DTR and RTS and, you know, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And it was too complicated. And so what happens is somebody writes a little software or makes a gadget and it encapsulates the complexity and reduces the amount of interface variation to use an architectural word. Um, so that um, it becomes a component in a bigger system. It's like uh, I used to work for a medical company that tried to send cardiology data over cell phones. And it was just an enormously complex problem. And the cell phones did horrible, horrible things to the data. And eventually uh, the vendors kind of got um, got a clue and gave us an interface that we could work with and a better data channel. And so all that complexity got buried uh, deep in the phone. And true, I don't have complete control over it anymore, but I don't want complete control over it. I just want a pipe. And um, and so they made me a pipe with a good, inter good queen interface on each end. And that's the same thing that happens with ham radio. Um, we get a very complicated new technology and it's fun. And there's a sort of a little click that, um, you know, pioneers it, I guess, and, and makes it work. And everybody else kind of wants in on it, but it's, um, it's a little too complicated because it has too many knobs and bells and whistles on it. So somebody sort of squeezes it into a box, uh, whether that's a physical box or a software box, and now you got a component. And so you build a system out of it. And so we, we kind of find our own level of complexity that we're used to. And um, sure, at the beginning, it's uh, complicated and confusing, but then it sort of evolves into a, a package and, and everybody can get on board. And that's what happens with FDA. It became, it, it was no longer a science project. It was a product. And uh, suddenly the combination of computing resources and um, performance and connectivity all came together to satisfy this pent-up demand, and poof, you've got um, a brand new mode. Yeah, I see what you're saying, but I, I, I still think in, in, it's something we should be looking out at, is, is my point of view. And th this gets, sort of gets into my, the next thing. So, you know, I teach a lot of classes, and... and um, we have so much in ham radio now. The, the the next thing that I see coming up is a how to uh, help people figure out what they want to do in ham radio, and then actually figuring out a way to help them to do it. Right, and well, that's uh, that's a good point, and it you, it depends on what people uh, how they approach uh, amateur radio and my little meme for ham radio 2.0 has been 
science service skill. That's that's what we're about, you know, these three things. So are they coming to it from a science technology angle? Are they coming to it from an emergency communications, public service um, angle? Are they coming at it because they like competitions and, um, you know, that kind of thing? Welcome them through that door, help them get good at what they thought they were going to do, and then introduce them to other things and um, open it up. Uh, Once they get their feet under them, uh, it's a lot easier to move around in the hobby. And once you get good at doing two or three different things, you're much more likely to stick with it and have a good experience. And and I and I think that's kind of the problem. I mean, uh, is that that we don't we don't really have good programs that help those people get their feet under them. Right. Uh, the ARL has a a new sort of program. It's just kind of getting started called Lifelong Learning and recognizing that the the successful amateur is going to have to learn new things over and over and over again. You, you come in and you get good at using your handheld and doing um, uh, point-to-point uh, communications in support of your MCOM group. Well, then you've got to uh, maybe learn some digital stuff. And then you learn about these little competitions. And then you get interested in propagation and all this. So you need to approach it from, I'm going to learn lots of things over my lifetime in in ham radio. And all of us need to be able to reach out to each other and to reach out to new people. So I think there's two different types of outreach. There's what I call inside outreach, which is across our internal party lines, if you, if you will, um, to, uh, you know, help each other learn about all the different things we're already doing and learn new stuff. And then there's um, outside outreach where we actually go out uh, to the public and the makers and the astronomers and the researchers and everybody that's interested in technology and um, and bring them in. So that you know, it's not just not just uh, us talking to one particular little group. Uh, Some people focus on students. That's great. What about young adults and professionals? That's another area. What about retired people? What about um, people who are interested in like CERT um, and that kind of thing? So there's targeted outreach. Outreach inside our hobby and outreach outside the hobby are, are really important over the next five to 10 years. You're right. And, and you know, people keep telling me, well, you know, that's too much for the ARRL to take on or we don't have enough resources. But I really think the ARRL has got to step up a little bit and uh, and and start doing a little bit more. Because well, they are the national organization. They're the they're the big they're the big kahuna. Yeah. But they do have limited resources and really um, nobody joins a an activity because of a national organization. They don't think, wow, that's a great organization. I want to get a piece of that. They they see somebody having a good time and they want in on it. And then later they find out, oh, there's a, a ham radio organization. So it's really incumbent on all of us to act as the ambassadors for ham radio. That said, the ARL needs to enable and support more of these independent groups, individuals, organizations that are doing the outreach and 
share their success, encourage them, give them resources. It's the difference between being the conductor, meaning the guy up on the podium with a stick, you know, um, making everything happen at the right time, and the guy who's the producer, who's off in the wings, watching this symphony happen. And I think the ARL has to be more happy in a producer's role and not so much in a conductor's role if we're all going to be able to promote this amateur radio thing that we enjoy. One of the things I think the ARRL could do a little bit better on is Elmering Elmers. Mm-hmm. And I, think, I think one of the reasons we don't have people th- like you and me that really do get out there and, and push things and do try and I don't know, do what we do is, is they don't, is people don't know how to do it. Right. And if, if we had some, I don't know, it's a half-baked idea, I know, but if we had some kind of program that would help people think about what it is they should do when they Elmer, that I think that would help because I, I just, I just get the feeling from lots of people that, Oh, you know, I don't really know enough to be an Elmer, even though they do it, it's, be, it's just because they don't they don't have the the confidence in their social ability or whatever you want to say. So well, that, yeah, trying to teach somebody um, is is always the first couple of times is very difficult, and you're sort of tentative about it. I'm, I understand that. Um, what you're talking about is a train the trainer um, exactly kind of program, and that's um, well understood in a lot of uh, different activities. Um, and basically, uh, you can't just write one book and have it apply to everybody. You know, you've written books and you know that you can write a book, I can write a book, Tom can write a book, and we can all write a book on the same thing and have it be three different perspectives on something. And somebody out there is going to like yours or mine or Tom's better than the others because it suits their needs. And so basically, the idea is not to have a one size fits all, but have a big toolbox of, of things that are successful. Like one of the one of the things in the license manual that's always a big stumbling block for new hams or people that are not electrical engineers and even some electrical engineers is this business about frequency and wavelength and, and velocity of, mm-hmm. of propagation and how do these relate and um, they've never encountered this before. So. I have a way of explaining it. You have a way of explaining it. Tom has a way of explaining it. Uh, lots of people have made videos and graphics and all this kind of stuff. And one of them will break through to the person that you're trying to educate. And so we need to have this basket of tools for all these key concepts and techniques and all this other stuff so that if you're, you've decided that you want to teach uh, the neighbor's kid about ham radio, um, you have tools that are appropriate for teaching somebody under 20. And then you have tools that are suitable for teaching a neighbor uh, or a business associate, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Not try to design a one-size-fits-all program, but to have a basket of things that you can use. And that gives people confidence that you know, I've got the tools and the resources I need to to be a mentor. And, you know, Ham's talk about Elmering. Uh, the word Elmer doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, I know. There are people, I mean, it's, it's a comfortable thing, but, you know, it doesn't always have the positive 
uh, connotation that we give it. And so I try to get people to use the word mentor. Um, it's the same thing with field day. Nobody knows what field day is except us. Uh, you know, you say to somebody, hey, we're doing field day. If they're not a ham, they go, what? What are you talking about field day? But if you say open house, this is a ham radio open house, they get it immediately. And so you put up a big sign at your field day site that says ham radio open house. You'll get people coming over all day and say ham radio field day. Uh, you know, you've lost more than half your audience. They have no idea what you're doing. So we need to use words and concepts that mean something to the intended target audience. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And you, and you caught me on that one. Oh, I do it all the time. I, it, it was somebody pointed that out to me. Um, and another thing is uh, ham radio is pretty much a guy thing, you know, uh, at the moment, but that's changing. And so we have to kind of um, look at the way we talk about how we do stuff. And I'm not talking about being politically correct. I'm just talking about being inclusive so that when we talk to a wide spectrum of people, we don't automatically exclude um, more than half of them right off the bat. Um, you want right. and, and I'm happy to say that in my classes, I do get quite a few women in our local club here. Uh, we have about 30 percent or, you know, about a third are women. So <laughs> we, we're we're doing pretty good at, at that here in Ann Arbor. Right. Ward, final question for you is what aspects of ham radio do you find you're attracted to these days? What or maybe another way to say is what keeps you motivated? What keeps me motivated? Well, trying to fix this stupid computer. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it's digital. I, I spent 40 years, 40 plus years, mumble, mumble, um, doing contesting and DXing. And I really enjoyed that. It brings me a lot of excitement. I was just down in Bonaire uh, doing the CQ Worldwide CW contest. Great fun. Lots of, you know technology, antennas, contacts, blah, blah, blah. But what, what I'm really interested in now is I want to do meteor scatter. That's what I was fooling around with the computer interface for. I want to do more things like FT8. I want to try them out. I want to invent new ways of contesting. Tom and I have talked about this. Yes. FT8, it's a great mode. Uh, and we can kind of shoehorn it into an existing contest modality, uh, like it's going to go into Ritty Roundup in January. But, you know, there's probably new types of contesting out there right. that FT8 could enable, you know, these new digital modes and stuff like that. Uh, how about new forms of contesting? Uh, I ask yes. people, I challenge them uh, in my talks to traditional groups. I say, what does it mean to have a radio um, competition in which an environment where everybody can receive and transmit from everywhere and you know where everybody is receiving and transmitting? It's all this metadata is now available through the Internet. Um, what kind of competition is it that we can engage in that still makes radio know-how, you know, those fundamentals, makes that the key element to success, not just that I buy a new box or I have a higher bandwidth data or whatever. I want to know how I keep radio know-how at the top of these 
awards and competitions. So, you know, I like, I want new technology. Um, I want to do um, these new kinds of competitions. And that's really where I'm putting my, putting my, my brain cycles these days. That's what keeps me interested. Uh, well, I'm with you on that. We've had that talk, and my addition to that is, is, is given that we can globally potentially communicate with one another now through things like FDA and, of course, know uh, where people are, why not move to our team-based Mm-hmm. You know, I, let's flip this. Everyone talks about, you know, that single person sitting in a dark room by themselves punching a keyboard for FT8 and how uninteresting that is. Well, it doesn't have to be like that. We could have teams of people that compete because propagation is constantly changing around the world as the sun turns right. or as the world turns. I mean, turn the sun turns you, around. us. You so, can hear the world turning. You know, yeah. People say, why do you do this? You know, I've got a cell phone here in my pocket. It's a supercomputer hooked up everywhere in the world. Why do you do what you do? And I say, I can literally hear the world turning. And I tell them a story about operating from the Galapagos Islands on 80 meters where I can hear sunrise sweeping across Europe. Cool. uh, You know, what happens as sunlight hits somewhere. And they're fascinated by that. They have no idea. Uh, So this is a completely new way of interacting with the world that they had no idea was even out there. That's a great story. Yeah, I want to hear more about that. Well, Ward, thank you so much. Dan, anything else uh, from your side? No, thanks again, Ward. That, uh, it's been a great interview. Well, I enjoyed it, and um, uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. Our pleasure. So I'll say 73s, and I'll see you on the bands. 7-3, Ward. You've been listening to the No Nonsense Amateur Radio Podcast with Dan, KB6NU, and Tom, KB5RF. For links to internet resources mentioned on the show and other notes, visit nonsenseamateurradio.com. For more information about amateur radio in general, visit Dan's blog at kb6nu.com. 7-3.